But would you rise, because I'm going to read the scripture passage for us this morning, and uh, if all of us can stand, if you're able to stand, that's great. If not, please feel free to stay seated. So the passage I'm going to preach from today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. It's a passage that if you have been in church uh, very many times before, you will probably probably be familiar with it. Um, But there's a reason for that, so we're going to look at it today. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I'd like to start with just a quick communal exercise. Um, If you would, would you please raise your hand if you came to church today? And keep your hand raised, please. Would you please raise your hand if you came to church today? Keep those hands in the air. And then, if the hand that you have in the air is your dominant hand... Would you please put your hand down? Those of you who still have your hands up, hold on, just for a second. If you had your non-dominant hand up, or something like that, keep it in the air. Uh, Just a couple. Ina, why did you raise your left hand? Are you right-handed? Why did you raise your left hand? Because you were eating. (laughs) Classic. That's classic. When you... uh, You raised your left hand? Are you right-handed? Why did you raise your left hand? You two were eating with Ina. Good. Uh, Kathleen, you raised your left hand. You're right-handed. Why did you raise your left hand? You were writing. Uh, Any other explanations out there as to why you raised your non-dominant hand? Blocking people. Trying to keep your hand out of the way. Good. Okay. All right, everyone may put their hands down. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so uh, I was thinking about this a little bit yesterday. Um, can I just ask, is there anybody in the room who is cross-dominant or mixed-handed? One. Two. We are, we are two. So, and, and this is about right. We're actually a slightly exceptional community because... of the human population is what they call cross-dominant in that they don't have a dominant hand. For different tasks, they choose a different hand uh, to use. And that I am one of those, and apparently, as are you. That's that's incredible. We We are double the human population in this room alone. So for someone like, like us, 
we might not actually, and I was thinking about this a lot last night, because I write with my right hand, but I throw with my left hand. Um, I bat left-handed in baseball, but I swing right-handed in golf, but I putt left-handed in golf. I kick with my right foot. And I was thinking, I bowl with my left hand, but I play ping pong with my right hand. And I was thinking about, I, I push elevator buttons with my left hand. And I was thinking about raising, and I realized I raise my left hand. And, and so I just, depending on the task, I'm cross-dominant. I don't have one or the other. I just pick a hand depending on what the task is that's different. Most of us, 99% of the population is either right or left hand dominant. And so you will, when, when someone says, raise your hand, if you came to church today, you will, unless you're eating or holding a child or trying to keep your hand out of the way, you will raise your dominant hand. That's, that's the way we work. That, that is what is expected of everyone. Our theme for this morning is um, we're finishing up our Jesus, King Jesus, um, I Pledge Allegiance series. And our theme this morning is that Jesus is a different kind of king. There are certain expectations of a king. But what we see in Jesus' life is that rather than doing what everyone expected, he actually does nearly the opposite of what you would have anticipated. And that is both inspiring, but it's also instructive. And so I want to spend just a few minutes this morning considering this passage, this truth. First, uh, I want to say just a couple words, this will probably be a little bit for the adults in the room, about messianic expectation. Jesus came as Israel's Messiah. He came as her long-awaited Davidic king. And what a Messiah meant to the people of Israel was that one day there would come a leader sent by God who would restore Israel to her greatness by defeating her oppressor, which was Rome. So the expectation for any potential Messiah or king was that this Messiah would come and restore Israel to her former glory by destroying the enemies that were oppressing her, i.e., this Messiah would be a warrior ready to do battle against Israel's enemies. And so when Jesus first came onto the scene and people began to flirt with the idea of him as the Messiah... We have to understand that that flirtation was considered up against the messianic expectation of the day. And so much of the gospel, once you have that part down, makes sense after that. For example, in Matthew chapter 3, there's a guy named John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, and he is the one who first introduces Jesus in these messianic terms. Jesus comes walking over the hill, and John the Baptist turns and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he begins to speak about Jesus as he's walking toward the crowd in the words of Isaiah, which gives them this messianic expectation. And then, as soon as the introduction is over and Jesus has been baptized, what happens right after that? Who knows? Jesus comes over the hill, he's introduced with messianic expectation, he gets baptized, and then he, somebody just said it, wilderness. wilderness. Then he goes out into the desert, into the wilderness. Now, we know 
that he went out there to fast and to pray and ultimately to be tempted by Satan. But the people who saw him go walking out of the room didn't know that. If somebody walked out, there are two little bathrooms out here. If somebody walked out the doors and went into one of those bathrooms, what do you think they went in there to do? They went in there to go to the bathroom, right? Because when you go into a bathroom, primarily the reason you go into the bathroom is so that you can use the toilets that are in that bathroom. When future potential messianic expectants went into the desert, they didn't do it to pray, they didn't do it to fast, they didn't do it to be tempted by Satan, they did it to raise an army and to train an army. Because you couldn't do that in the hills of Galilee because all the Roman soldiers were around and they would see you training an army and they would kill you right there and it would be over. So you went out into the desert where nobody was watching and you got some people together, you rounded them up and out in the hot, dry, barren desert, you trained and then you came back and you tried for your insurrection. So when Jesus goes out into the desert and spends 40 days and nobody knows what he's doing, and then he walks back into the hills of Galilee, and he starts walking around, going up to men, strong fishermen, many of them, and saying, hey, you, come follow me. Hey, you, come follow me. Hey, you, come follow me. What does everybody think he's doing? He's recruiting an army, right? He's getting the people who are going to come and fight. And when you then watch what happens over the course of the Gospels, that, that plays out, right? Um, we have the, the folks in... in uh, some of you remember John chapter 6. Jesus is um, feeding the 5,000. He feeds all of them. And then what happens immediately after he feeds the 5,000? Who knows? Does anyone know? You know. That's right. According to John chapter 6, it's going to be right here. Jesus, knowing that the crowds intended to make him king, withdrew by himself into the mountains. The moment he performs this incredible feat and he miraculously feeds 5,000 people, all the people realize this is the guy. Nobody could do this unless he had the power of God. Let's make him king so he can go to Jerusalem, defeat Rome, and we can restore Israel. And Jesus, sensing the crowd wanted him to do that, went off by himself and got away from them because that wasn't what he was supposed to do. Or remember later how the disciples were arguing over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Who would sit down at the left or the right hand of Jesus? And we don't know which one was better because we don't know if he was left-handed or right-handed or cross-dominant. I believe he was cross-dominant, but that's just me projecting my own desires. Or when James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, Hey, will you please let my two sons reign with you in your kingdom? What are all those requests, what are all those arguments about? They're about Jesus after he destroys Rome and Israel is restored. Who's going to get all the power positions in his new kingdom? Or remember how the huge crowds gathered along the road and put palm branches on the ground and welcomed Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, the capital city that he was about to regain, restore, and, and establish as his own new capital city in Israel. Or remember how Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when the Roman soldiers came to arrest him, Peter, his primary, his best disciple, pulls out a sword and lunges at one of the guards and cuts off his ear. Why does Peter have a sword? 
when he's following a pacifist, socialist leader, and yet there he stands in the garden with a sword, because even Peter believes that a battle is coming. Everyone thought that Jesus was the messianic king that would fight for Israel, defeat Rome, and establish his new kingdom in Jerusalem. And that is exactly why when Jesus didn't resist arrest when they came to get him, why when he went to trial he didn't speak in his own defense, why when he was being beaten and tortured he didn't fight back, that the people who followed him became irate because he was a messianic disgrace. This is not what kings do. All that hope that they had had and nothing. He did nothing. And just like with the hand raising, when somebody is, when there's an expectation of what someone is going to do and then they do the exact opposite, you kind of want to ask, why did you? And there's usually an explanation. I was eating. I was And the reason that he had not done the things that every other king would have done, the reason that he was a different kind of king, is that he wasn't trying to build an earthly kingdom of wealth and power. He was trying to build an eternal kingdom of life and salvation. And Rome wasn't the enemy. Satan was the enemy. And that meant that Jesus was a different kind of king from all those who had come before and from all those who would come after. A king that didn't send men out to die to establish his own wealth and power, but a king that himself went outside the gates and fought on our behalf, shielding us behind him so that we might have life and salvation. A king that thought of us instead of himself. And that made Jesus, makes Jesus, a different kind of king. And so, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I think we are left with at least a couple of simple applications. Number one, we give thanks for Jesus, who instead of asking us to die for him, instead died for us. A different kind of king that we would have never expected. And that is why we gather together in this room and we sing songs and we praise him. Because there are lots of kings in this world and we would never do that for them. But for this different kind of king, we would. And number two, if you have a different kind of king and he establishes his kingdom, then what does that mean about the inhabitants of that kingdom? If he, as king, acts in a way that no one would have anticipated or expected and then becomes king, what then would you think happens amongst the inhabitants of his kingdom? They act in ways that no one would have anticipated or expected. They are totally different than what you would have thought they would be. They respond totally different than how you thought they would have responded. So Jesus says that when your enemy comes and strikes you, turn your other cheek. Make yourself vulnerable to them again. The world would expect that when someone strikes you, you strike back. When someone hits you, you hit them harder. But Jesus says the exact opposite of his people. 
The world would say when someone sues you and tries to take your money or your possessions inappropriately and they win in court, we would say fight back, appeal. But Jesus says, no, don't only give them what they asked for in the lawsuit, give them more. Give them your coat too, right? Give them beyond what they have asked. If a a soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, don't just carry it a mile, carry it for two miles. If you're going to give money, don't do it so that people can see you. Do it secretly, in quiet, so that nobody knows. If you're going to pray and be spiritual, don't do it in front of everyone so they see you being spiritual. Go into a closet all by yourself where no one knows, and there talk to your Father in heaven. If somebody sins against you and they have violated you, don't go back and try to get revenge. Forgive them. How many times? 70 times 7. Jesus' way of saying, as many times as humanly possible until you are dead, keep forgiving that person over and over and over. Or as Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, so powerfully says, be different kind of people. Be people in a kingdom that represent the different kind of king. So don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out just for your interests, but take an interest in others too. You should have the exact same attitude as the king whose kingdom you serve. And though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something that he should cling to. Instead, he abandoned his divine privilege, took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being in the incarnation in that little cradle. When he appeared in human form, he then humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. You should be just like your king. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are absolutely different than any other leader in human history, that there is, there is no other way to understand. You are just absolutely distinct, and we worship you today, and we pray that you will make us different in the way that you are different. Give us your Holy Spirit, because if it is up to us, our flesh will win and we will fail, but we pray that by the power of the Spirit, we will be transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. Our praise team is going to come forward and lead us in a final song or two.